course, we start with Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, uh, one that maybe is most well-known, of course, made in 1956, uh, the most well-known. But uh, it's really been followed then by a whole slew of TV shows and movies on the subject. So we move into 1998. Uh, Your kids may have seen this. It's DreamWorks' The Prince of Egypt, a very good cartoon movie. And, of course, I think the country was riveted by uh, the History Channel's The Bible series. I don't know if you were able to watch that or not, but episode two was all about the Exodus, of course, featuring this guy, Moses, right? Or he's not really Moses, right? The guy who played Moses. And then, of course, the most recent movie, the 2014 release of Fox's Exodus, Gods and Kings. Um, I share all this just to say that the Exodus and the Exodus story is riveting. It's very uh, influential. People are interested in it. It makes good movies. It's because it's a real historical event. And so for the next several weeks leading into this Good Friday Seder Passover that we just talked about, um, we're going to be exploring the Exodus event. And I just want to give you a brief, a brief introduction to the book of Exodus. Um, the, the word Exodus, the title from which we know this book, comes actually from a Greek word simply meaning to exit or a way out or a departure. And we know that it's all about uh, the central major event in the book, which is the getting out of the nation of Israel from bondage. And when you look at the, the content of the book, if you read through the book of Exodus, what you're going to find out is that the book itself, how it's arranged, clearly emphasizes the Exodus, the Exodus event. So here's just one example. Uh, the book of Exodus covers 430 years. So the book of Exodus from the beginning to the end covers uh, some four centuries, 430 years to be exact, from the arrival of Jacob in Egypt at the beginning of the book to the erection of the tabernacle at the end of the book. So it covers lots of years. And yet chapter 3 through chapter 40, the vast majority of the book covers just two years. Just two years, the year before the Exodus event and the year after the Exodus event. And so just simply reading the book will show you that that emphasis, uh, God's emphasis to us is on the Exodus event. But not only is the Exodus event central in the book of Exodus, when you look at the whole Old Testament, what you're going to find out is that the Exodus event is actually the foundational redemptive event in all of the Old Testament. That is, it's referenced numerous times. It's alluded to numerous times. You could say that the whole Old Testament narrative almost centers around uh, God's saving event of the Exodus. Dr. Eugene Merrill from Dallas Seminary says it this way. He says, the Exodus is the most significant historical and theological event in all of the Old Testament. So the Exodus event, this getting out of Egypt, is central to the book of Egypt. You could even say it's foundational to all of the Old Testament, but it doesn't stop there. Because when you read in the New Testament, what you're going to find out is that the Old Testament event of the Exodus reaches into the New Testament. And when you go into the New Testament, you're going to discover that this event that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, this Exodus, it foreshadows, and it is a type of God's greater rescue of his people in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. What you find out is that the New Testament links the Exodus event both to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
That is, it links it to the person who Jesus is and what he does. Just a couple examples will suffice. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew likens uh, Jesus as an infant. Remember, his time that he spent in Egypt, his departure to Egypt and his time in Egypt, and then his return back to the promised land. He says this. He likens it to the Exodus event. He says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Likening Jesus coming out of Egypt to God, bringing out his people out of Egypt. And so here we see the Exodus is linked to the person of Christ, directly to the person of Christ. But not only that, the Exodus is actually linked to the work of Christ. When you're reading in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, you're probably familiar with the event uh, known as the Transfiguration, right? And at that point, what you have happening is Jesus is there, and he is talking, right? And in that conversation with Moses and Elijah, according to Luke, they spoke about this, quote, they spoke about his departure. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring up to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, if you just read that in, in English, that seems kind of straightforward. But this, this word here, that they were speaking about his departure, it's actually the same Greek word where we get our title from the Exodus. They were talking about Jesus' Exodus, his Exodus work, if you will, suggesting that Jesus' death and his resurrection in Jerusalem was the ultimate exodus, the ultimate getting out of God's people. And so here we see that the exodus is linked to Jesus' work, to the work of Jesus. I heard one pastor say it this way, and I think it, it made it clicked in my mind. The pastor's name was Alex Matier, and he explained the, the, the link between this Old Testament event of the exodus and Jesus' work this way. And I'll quote him. He said, think about it. How would an Israelite describe their experience in the Exodus? So put yourself in their shoes, somebody who just went through this event. How would they talk about it? How would they describe it? Well, he says this. He says they may say something like this. Well, I was a foreigner in a foreign land, and I was under the sentence of death. I was in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. My mediator led us out of bondage, and we crossed over into a new life. And now we're on our way to the promised land, but, but we're not there yet. He has given us his law to make us a community, and he's given us the tabernacle because we have to live by grace and by forgiveness. His presence is in our midst, and he's promised to stay with us until we make it home. And then he follows by saying, that's very similar to how you and I might describe our Christian experience. So to sum up this little introduction on our upcoming sermon series, I think you could say that Exodus, the story of the Exodus, is a story of salvation. It's a story of salvation within the story of salvation, which culminates at the cross and the empty tomb. It's a story about the God who rescued, and it's a story about the God who still rescues today. And so now we're going to transition. I'm going to ask one of our elders, Dan, to come pray for us. And we're going to sing songs about the God who saves. Dan, would you pray for us? Father, you are indeed sovereign. You are a great God. In Job, you talk about 
He questioned him, Job himself, do you know where I keep the storehouses of snow? And Lord, you've uh, showed us again this morning that you, you are the creator of all of nature. You are in control of it. It'll snow when you want it to snow, and it'll shine when you want it to shine. Father, uh, just as it was your good pleasure to choose the nation of Israel, to lead them out of Egypt, and to draw them to yourself, Father, we are just so grateful that you have chosen us, not, not on our own. We did not seek you, Lord. We did not, we did not find you on our own. You have called us all to be yours, and it's, it's because of you that we know Jesus, we know the plan of salvation, that we know that we will spend eternity with you. And we are just so grateful, Lord, that we can, uh, we can have that confidence. We praise you. We ask you to bless our worship and our music this morning. In your name, amen. amen. At this point in time, and turn with me uh, to the book of Exodus. Uh, you got Genesis, then you got Exodus. So very easy to find. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in a series on Exodus, the God who saves. And today, um, in our sermon, Oppression and Preparation, I hope to, covers, uh, to cover Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 1 and 2. So Exodus 1 and 2, as we begin our sermon series in part 1, Oppression and Preparation, we're going to work our way through uh, rather quickly the first couple introductory chapters of the book of Exodus. I trust that you're there or close to it. Let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, would you be among us now? Would you help us to, uh, to hear your word and to be obedient to your word? Spirit, would you come and convict us, uh, encourage us, rebuke us, challenge us, teach us, and change us all according to your will? Uh, may the words that I say be uh, according to your scriptures and accurate and altogether helpful. And may we have hearts that are soft toward your word, willing to change, moldable clay in your hands. And may we marvel uh, at you who is our God. You are our Savior. You are a powerful God. And you rescue us from sin and death and Satan and everything that we need. You are our God. Who rescues. And I pray as we look into this story of your mighty saving work of your Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, may we learn the lessons, the diamonds hidden in this story. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. I'd like us to begin in Exodus chapter 1. The opening chapter of Exodus describes the oppression of God's people. And so chapter 1 is all about oppression and uh, setting up, essentially, the story of the Exodus. And what we see is a story of the oppression of God's people in three sections. So it's pretty simple to follow. Verses 1 through 7, we see the setting. So there's the setting of the book. In verses 8 through 14, we see the slavery. That is the bondage of God's people. And then in verses 15 through 22, we're going to see the slaughter. So let's begin with the setting, verses 1 through 7, as we begin this chapter on the oppression of God's people setting up this mighty Exodus work. Verses 1 through 7 read this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt, verse 6. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. 
they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so in verses 1 through 7, we have the introduction to what's going to be this miraculous saving work of God. What we have in verses 1 through 7 is really a portrait of God's blessing. What we have is a portrait of God's faithfulness and blessing to Abraham, the patriarch, to grow his family from some 70 people that went into the land to some 600,000 just men alone, according to chapter 12, verse 37. And so what we have here is a picture of God's blessing, of God's people growing, all in the fulfillment of the initial promise that God made to Abraham. We can't read the Exodus without reading Genesis. The two stories are connected. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, we have this promise made by God to the patriarch. He says this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And what we have described in verses 1 through 7 is God making good on that promise. He promised to make them a numerous and a great nation. And what we see is that when they were in Egypt, that's exactly what happened. They exceedingly multiplied. They grew into a great and powerful people. And God kept his promise. What we see is the setting of the stage of the coming oppression that we're going to see by uh, uh, several pharaohs, actually. And yet, what's interesting is that this setting the stage of the future, the coming oppression, even the coming oppression, is actually a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Another promise that God gave to Abraham just a few chapters later in Genesis 15. Because God not only promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would make him, that is, his descendants, into a great nation, God promised Abraham this. Genesis 15, verse 13 through 14. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And so what we see is that hundreds of years earlier, God promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, and he fulfilled that promise. He even promised Abraham that his descendants would be in bondage, and that he would, in promising this exodus event, he would bring them out with a great display of power. And so the stage in verses 1 through 7 is set. And it brings us to one of maybe six life lessons. As we work our way through uh, the first two chapters, I want to bring to light life lessons that I think this scripture teaches us. And the first one is simply this God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Not only does he keep his promises to Abraham, but he keeps his promises to us as well. He will keep his promise that your loved one who is now departed in Christ or in the very presence of Jesus and that you, if you have faith in Christ too, you will be reunited with them in glory. He has promised you that as a believer. And Christian, he will be faithful to keep his promise. He's promised us as believers to provide for us a way of escape from any temptation that we may face. And he will do that. Church, we can count on our Heavenly Father never to break his promises. So we see the setting, verses 1 through 7. The stage is set for the coming oppression. 
And the coming oppression of God's people is going to come in three ways as we read through the text, starting in verse 8 and running through verse 14 with the first wave of oppression, which is slavery. Let's read it together, verses 8 through 14. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so we see wave number one, the oppression of God's people in the slavery of their people. This new king who came to power, historically speaking, was likely a king by the name of uh, Thutmose I. If you're looking for a baby name, there's one to consider, right? Thutmose I. This is most likely that pharaoh. Uh, And what he did was he put an end to what was essentially 400 years of a warm welcome of the former pharaohs to Joseph and his family. And really we see that he did this to a twofold concern, right? What were the two things that he was concerned about? Well, the text tells us that, number one, the Israelites outnumbered the Egyptian ruling class. So they were concerned about the sheer population growth. And, of course, secondly, that led to him fearing their rebellion. I want to let you know that on your way out at the Welcome Center, what there is is there's a sheet, and it's basically some information about the pharaohs that uh, we find in the book of Exodus because there are several pharaohs that actually historically show up. Just want to keep you on the same page with me. You can find that on the back. So what this pharaoh does, likely Thutmose I, is he implemented slavery as the first of three tactics in an attempt to do what? He wanted to reduce the population. Historically, we know that enslaving a race or a people with hard labor typically causes population decline. And yet what happened? Just exactly the opposite happened, right? He intended to decrease the population, and yet by God's sovereign grace, this strategy backfired, and the nation grew all the more. So that leads us to a second life lesson, and it's simply this. Man cannot thwart God's plans and his purposes. This is a wonderful illustration of humankind uh, going against God's plans and against God's purposes and failing. I think, church, this is a very helpful reminder for us today, for us Christians today, because we live in a world that is seemingly, increasingly hostile, both, both to us and to our God. Just watching the news or reading people post things on Facebook can be extremely discouraging, right? And yet we can take courage because as this passage and numerous other passages show us, no one can thwart God's plans. And what's even more incredible is that he can even use that hostile person or group 
as a means of even eventually carrying out his will. No one can thwart God's plans. No one can thwart God's purposes. And so we see plan A of Pharaoh. It's foiled. And so he moves on to plan B, the slaughter of innocent baby boys. In verses 15 through 21, let's read this together. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shephira and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And so you could say that if plan A didn't work, you could say that plan B uh, miscarried as well, right? Because the two head of the Hebrew midwives, what did they do? They feared God more than they feared man. They feared God and the consequences of disobeying him more than they feared disobeying the commands of what, at this point, was the most powerful man in the entire world. And because they did that, he blessed them. What likely happened, although we're not for sure, is that they may have been intentionally slow to respond to the women who were giving birth, allowing the baby boys to possibly be hidden before they arrived. Finally, plan A is foiled. Plan B is frustrated by God. And so Pharaoh, in desperation, moves on to plan C, which is a more extreme and a more public action to decrease the Jewish population. He resorts himself to governmentally sanctioned genocide. Verse 22 reads this way. Then, plan C, then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but, net, but let every little girl live. So plan A doesn't work. Plan B doesn't work. He moves to the most extreme, plan C. He tells his entire population, all of the Egyptians, if you find yourself a Hebrew baby boy, throw him down the river, right? And yet we're going to see that this will also be foiled. And it leads us to a third life lesson that I think we very clearly see from these two Hebrew midwives. And that is this. We must fear and obey God more than we fear and obey man. Young people, students, I may speak to you just for a moment. You will be, most likely, inevitably, encouraged to do and to say things that is displeasing to God. And you will have to make a choice. 
Will you go with your friends or will you go with God? Will you fear the approval or disapproval of your friends or will you fear God? Adults, of course, we have to face this and make this choice as well. At the coffee shop, maybe at the party or the social gathering, at the ball game in a supervisor's office, we often too may have to choose whom we will fear the most. While Pharaoh here in chapter 1 was urging extermination, God was preparing emancipation. While God was urging the extermination of God's people, God was preparing the emancipation of his people by providing a protector. And so in, Genesis, in Exodus 1, we see the oppression of God's people. And in Exodus chapter 2, we see the preparation. The preparation of God's protector, of the man who God would raise up to deliver his people from such oppression. So let's move from Exodus 1 into Exodus 2. As with chapter 1, chapter 2 neatly breaks up into three sections as it describes the preparation of God's protector. Of course, we all know would be the man named Moses. In verses 1 through 10, we see his protection. That is, infant baby Moses is going to be protected. In verses 11 through 15, we see his plight as the infant grows up to be a man and becomes a murderer. And yet we see in verses 16 through 25, we see his preparation. Because God even uses murderers to prepare and to save his people. So let's begin into chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10, we see the protection of Moses. Chapter 2 reads this way, verses 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him any longer, she got a a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. When Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and, bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "This, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Here in verses 1 through 10, we have an amazing, incredible story of God's divine intervention and protection of the one that he had called to deliver his people. While his mother's strategy was somewhat unclear, at least to me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, gives us insight and affirms that she was acting in faith 
Verse 23 reads this way. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months while he, after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so she acts in faith, entrusting this little three-month-old baby boy into the hands of her God. Significantly, Moses in Hebrew means one who draws out. One who draws out. Now, of course, Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm going to name him Moses because I I drew him out of the Nile River. And yet, ironically, what would Moses do? What role would Moses play? God was going to use him to draw out his people from slavery and from bondage. And that leads us yet to another life lesson that I think we see from the parents of Moses, and it's this. We need to trust God with our children. And as a parent, this is a hard lesson to learn. And I think it's probably one that we continue to learn day by day. And yet Moses' parents, I think, are a wonderful example of entrusting their children to God. Now, I don't know if any of us will ever face an edict in which our children are to be exterminated. Therefore, we have to act in such faith. I pray that that will never be the case. And yet, like Moses' parents, we too must act by faith, as the author of Hebrew tells us. We need to trust God with our kids. We need to trust God with their lifespan, how long they will live. We need to trust God with their health and their safety, which seems to be so preeminent in our thinking. We must trust God with their decisions, both the good ones and the godly ones, and the unwise, or maybe even downright evil ones. We must trust God with their salvation, whether they will turn to Jesus by personal faith or whether they will reject him. We must trust God with their success and with their failure. We need to trust God with their futures, with their careers. We need to trust God with their future marriages or their future singleness. And of course, as parents, we pray. We pray and we parent, but certainly we, we strive to do so with an increasingly rock-solid trust in the sovereign God. And so the next scene moves on, and the story moves ahead 40 years. In verses 1 through 10, we have infant Moses. In verses 11 through 15, we have midlife, 40-year-old Moses, according to Acts chapter 7. And the scene shifts from uh, his being protected by God to his self-induced plight. And so we move from his protection to his plight. In verses 11 through 15, it reads this way. One day, after Moses had grown up 40 years, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are, you, why are you hitting? Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now the story of Moses' life in Midian continues in verse 16, but I want to pause just a second here to consider uh, this, this interesting turn of events, right? This interesting twist in the story of God raising up one who would deliver his people. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in your shoes and searching for a pastor or, or a leader, and if somebody sent their resume and on that resume was a murderer, I probably would throw it away, right? That's not the kind of leader you're typically looking for. Here, we get great insight on both God and Moses. Acts chapter 7, verse 24, I think, shows us a little bit about what Moses was thinking in murdering this Egyptian. Acts 7, 25, excuse me, reads this way. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And the context there is in his murder. So what, what we see is we put two and two together, and seemingly Moses, at the age of 40, had some kind of inclination that God would choose him, that God would use him, that, that at least he wanted to rescue his people. He had an inclination to be a deliverer, right? But he pursued it in all the wrong ways. Here, ironically, Moses, he rescues a fellow Israelite, from a beating. And of course, eventually, what, he, what would he do? He would rescue all of them from their slavery and from, the, from their oppression, but it wouldn't be his way. It wouldn't be the way that he would do it. It would be God's way. And it would be God's timing, not Moses' timing. And so, as a result of this murder, he becomes public enemy number one of Pharaoh who most likely now is a different Pharaoh from the one we saw. This is likely Thutmose number three, not Thutmose number one. And, of course, he had no choice but to flee. So he flees. He hightails it out of town. He's a wanted man. There are signs posted on the tree with his picture on it, right? He's a wanted man, public enemy number one. And so he has to flee, and he flees to a remote desert region where the nomadic Midianites, distant, distant, distant relatives of the Israelites, Abraham from Keturah, where they settled. And so I see one more life lesson here from his plight. And it's this. God uses sinners to accomplish his plans, even murderers. I hope none of you are guilty of at least physically killing someone, And yet, when we raise our voice in anger, what does Jesus say? We are essentially murdering. It should be encouraging to all of us when we look at the life of Moses, because we all have messed up. We all have sinned. Scripture says we all sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us have messed up. We're all broken people in one way, shape, or another. And we may be thinking, God can't use me. I have done fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Whatever your blank is, there's something there to be filled in for all of us. And we may think, God, I'm, off, I'm, I'm on the bench. I can't be used at all. Well, have you murdered someone physically? 
If you haven't, then you have one leg up on Moses, who God changed and used and trained in a mighty way. And so be encouraged. God uses sinful people to accomplish his plans and his purposes in this world. So we move to the final section. We've seen the protection of infant Moses. We've seen the plight of midlife, adult Moses. And now in verses 16 through 25, we see his preparation. We see the preparation of Moses. In verses 16 through 22 is where I'd like to read. Reads this way. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters... And they came to draw water and to fill the troughs of water. Uh, they came to fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Now some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue, and he watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us. And watered the flock. And where is he, Rule asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So in summary fashion, verse 22. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom. Saying, I have, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So here we see God moving Moses from sin to being trained to be a savior, right? We see his preparation. And in typical Moses fashion, he plays the part of a rescuer, right? And the people he rescues now is his future wife, his future sister-in-laws, which of course lands him in the good grace of his future father-in-law, who'd eventually give him one of his daughters in marriage, And they would have a son. And he names this son commemorating that he is now a a foreigner in a foreign land. We find out later, as we continue to read through the account of Exodus, that Moses becomes a shepherd of rules flocks. So he's a shepherd of his father's flocks. Which in my opinion is a suitable profession. It's a suitable profession for God to teach and to train Moses to eventually shepherd, not sheep, but who? The whole entire population of God's people. And not only that, but he is here in the region where the Midianites roamed, which was the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula. Interestingly enough, it's significant because he's raising sheep and he is going from here to there all over the Sinai Peninsula? And what would he be doing leading God's people, the the sheep of Israel? He would be leading them later in that very same wilderness. And so God here is preparing Moses. He's preparing Moses for what would eventually come in chapters 3 and beyond. And it leads us to one final life lesson. I think we can learn this lesson from the life of Moses. Unexpected seasons of life may be God's preparing you for what is ahead. Now, I don't think that this is how Moses planned it. I don't think Moses thought that he would end up being a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, public enemy number one of the most powerful man in the world. 
I think it's safe to say that this was an unexpected turn, an unexpected season of life for Moses. And yet God was using this time to prepare him for what was ahead. And I think God can do the same for us. Maybe you're in what you would consider an unexpected season of life. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's an empty nest. Maybe it's an unexpected pregnancy. Maybe it's a a change in your health or somebody else's health that you love. Maybe it's an unexpected death. Whatever it may be, in those seasons, I think like Moses, we can ask ourselves, God, what are you doing in my life? What are you trying to teach me? Where are you leading me? What are you preparing me for in this time period? So for 40 years... For 40 more years, God would prepare his protector until the time was right. Not Moses' time, but God's time. And that time occurred when there was a new pharaoh, likely Amenhotep. There's another good name for you. Amenhotep II is most likely the new pharaoh that we see at the very end of Exodus 2. God hears his people crying in bondage. And the time of the exodus was at hand. Let's read verses 23 through 25 as we close. During that long period, 40 more years in the desert, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so the stage is now set for the calling of God's man. As we move on next week into chapters 3 and 4, God is going to call this man Moses, and he's going to begin what is the most, one of the most significant Old Testament salvations that points to the salvation accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this introduction to the book of Exodus, to this grand story of you delivering your people. And Father, we are so encouraged as we hear these last words that when your people cry out to you for help, You are not distant, you do not turn your ear, you are not unconcerned, but you hear us when we cry to you, and you look upon us, and you are concerned. And just as you looked upon the slavery of your people of old, and began to prepare a Savior, we know that you did the same. You looked on all of humanity, and our collective cry, our need for deliverance, not out of physical slavery, but out of spiritual slavery, came to your ears. And when the time was right, in the fullness of time, just as you prepared Moses, you prepared Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater deliverer, the greater protector. And because of his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection, we are all the better. And so we thank you for these lessons for what we can learn. And we pray that you would begin to change us and work in our hearts and make us into the people that you want us to be. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. And all of God's people said, Amen.